The Jericho Network on Westwood One. The following program is presented by the Jericho Network in association with Podcast One. Podcast One presents Rock Talk, Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. All the rockers, all the stories. This is incredible. Now, now, here's your host, respected rock journalist, Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to my very first episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon and a big thank you to Chris Jericho and Podcast One for having me here. For all the listeners that are familiar with my work, thank you for joining me here. And to all the new listeners, welcome. I did my first interview back in 1980 with Kisses Gene Simmons and I was the ripe old age of 11 years old and I have been doing it ever since. My interviews are more about telling compelling stories about the artist's life and career rather than a quick plug for their latest project. And since this is the first episode, I will supersize it for you. I will give you, in fact, two wonderful interviews. First up will be guitarist Andy Summers from The Police. His new album is Triboluminescence. It is out now. It is certainly worth checking out. We talk about that, his photography, and much more. And in the second half of today's show, I will dig into my Canadian roots and give you guitarist Paul Dean of the band Loverboy. Aren't we all just uh, working for the weekend? But uh, more on Paul later. Right now, let's get into this. Here is the one, the only, from the police, guitarist Andy Summers. We are speaking with Andy Summers. The new album is Tribo Luminescence. Um, pleasure to speak with you, Andy. Oh, good to be here. So, let's talk about this this new album. I've been listening to it, and... The sounds are, they're just very inspired. Now, you're calling it the new exotic, so, so talk to me about how it came together. Um, well, great pain. You're <laughs> There's a lot right. of waiting around. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, you know, I made a record last year, sort of, sort of intentionally but unintentionally. I was hoping to do this uh, uh, project you know, the year before. Like it was, I was writing music for a dance project in New York, which didn't actually come to anything in the end after like quite a bit of effort. But I had these tracks going, and from that, you know, I turned it into an album, which was called Metal Dog. I mean, it sort of got me really going again back in recording and, and rec you know, doing everything alone, you know. Um, so, and it went really well. It got very well reviewed. It was like a new sort of, the fire started again. And uh, so, I mean, this really, this album is kind of following along from that, you know, taking you know, from that energy last year. And I think it's really about, you know, I call it the new exotic and it seems to have been going quite well as a phrase. <laughs> um, using these sort of non-generic, more different kinds of sounds, a lot of gamelan sounds I've got in there, you know, these loops and stuff, and sort of trying to push it into a new area that, you know, obviously has areas of improvisation and room for soloing and so on so forth but uh you know it's very much about trying to create my own thing that pushes the edges of you know contemporary guitar or you know jazz 
if you like, you know, because it's, uh, I think, you know, I'm not playing like a traditional jazz quartet. In fact, I think some of the looping stuff when I do replaces that and makes it kind of hipper and more contemporary sounding. Right. So what is sort of the the ultimate goal with this? Is it really just to push the boundaries or do you see it as being more something for the stage and, and a performance art? Well, that's an interesting question. I don't know about ultimate goal. That's a very big statement. Big word. Right. Ultimate goal. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't, you know, wow. Um, I, you know, to me, the process of making this is it's very enjoyable. You know, I mean, I go to my studio a lot here in LA it's just really I mean it's myself and my engineer who's worked with me for many years but we're not bringing other people in so it's very much this creative process and slowly you know piecing these uh, tracks together you know through sort of experimentation hopefully sometimes as inspiration sometimes you're just grafting away sometimes you have to stop listening and then three days later you get get it or it, it's not sitting well with you anymore there's all sorts of um backwards and forwards and experiment and trying and uh you know you know playing solos when the moment is right you know when i can sort of feel the energy is right and i can sort of go for it there's all, all kinds of moves are made sort of aesthetic some are based on um you know kind of w- what you know about musical history and, and what's out there and, and where you want to place it you know sort of positioning yourself i suppose so there's a, there's a, lot, a great deal of, well, obviously work and time, but there's thought as well to get to, you know, to end up with nine tracks like this, you know, that are culled down from many other tracks. Yeah. The um, the easy thing for you, of course, would be to, to, to you know, go on the road and play yeah. a, a set of police songs and stuff like that. That, w- that would be sort of the easy way to do this. Why would you want to challenge yeah. yourself in this sense? What's well, the... okay, you're going to have a, I'm going to give you a surprise quest, uh, answer to that, right. actually. Well, A, I think being on the road, you know, endlessly, I've done it all my life, right? Um, I don't really want to play in clubs anymore. I mean, it has to be a very high level of comfort for me to want to go out and do it, which I do. Uh, but um, it's so mindless. You, you know, sometimes I think being on the road is, you know, it's such a waste of my brain and talent. You know, there's so much sitting around. It, you know, it's fun, and of course, I've, I, I have done it so much. Um, I like, you know, creatively being in the studio and, and making this kind of music because it really engages me on on so many levels. I have to play very well. I have to think well. I have to be creative, compositional, and you know, it's calling, uh, it's calling up a lot of things on on yourself as a musician now of course the other side of the coin as a musician is playing in front of people and being in an inspired moment playing with a great drummer and you know soloing away it's wonderful of course and you know it's a drug i've never gotten over it um but i'm not doing as much as i used to partly by choice because i I don't want to waste so much time doing that you know i don't have to prove anything anymore i think we could agree on that but you know but for instance just to kind of turn that statement on his head i'm going down to brazil and about uh, on the 24th for a three-week tour and we're going to play all police music that's the show it's all police hits but i'm playing it with two legendary musicians a drummer and a singer bass player fantastic players who were very influenced by the police and i've played with the singer before and he's great you know we've done shows together so in fact, I can, I am going to go and do that only because I've been spent so much time in Brazil and it's a very 
comfortable situation. The venues are fantastic. Uh, it's very, it's, you know, it's it's a, it's kind of a great, you know, it's like, almost like a paid vacation. It's so much fun. <laughs> so I'm going to go out there and play, you know, uh, so there you go. Oh, that'll be fun. Now, one of the other things you do, especially when you're on the road, and I'm, I'm assuming you'll do the same thing in Brazil, is you bring along the uh, camera, and you'd like to take yes, uh, pictures, and you've done a lot of galleries, including the, bone, the bones of Changzhou from China and all that. Um, yeah. Talk to me about that creative outlet and yeah. what that gives to you, uh, and well, what are you good. looking yeah, for? That's a good question. Yeah, right. yeah, it, it is. It's totally, it's, I mean, you know, obviously... The first call in life for me is, is music. I was born to be a musician. And to me, music is the greatest of the arts. No question in my mind. I completely love photography. And the thrill for me, uh, honestly, is, you know, uh, the kind of photography I like to do, it takes me out into the world and into, you know, situations that, you know, is, you know where you've never felt more alive, if you like. You know, because I go to China a lot, um, I'll be on, I think, my eighth visit this year when I go back. I've been all over it, um, photographing. The Bones of Changzhou is a book that hopefully will come out in October, all photography shot in China. And so I've traveled extensively. And But so you're out there shooting with a certain aesthetic in mind, and then, you know, you get to the point where you, you have to put all this stuff together, just like music. I've got all these tracks, but here we've got all these photographs from different trips, and you have to kind of you know bring it down into the very best and there's there's a lot of pain involved in that you know having to give up certain things and then create this sort of a sequence of you know 80 to 100 photographs of sort of a musical flow to it so again it's very creative and so um two things to it for me i like being out there in the, in the world and in, in these places that i go to and i've traveled all over asia africa shooting photographs and uh, you know, and then you know, processing it all back huh, at, at home. But uh, I mean, to me, in a way, that is sort of becoming more fun to do that than grinding around in a bunch of clubs. You know, like why do I need to do that anymore? You know, I, I you know, I never stop making music, but I don't really feel like I need to turn up in Akron and play in a basement. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, it could be could be fun though, right? Well, it could be. No. <laughs> Yeah, if you've got a good sense of irony, you could you could enjoy it. No, you know, I'm, I'm going to play at the Grammy Museum in L.A. next week. I'm going to do a solo show. So, you know, I'm going to practice for that. I'll be doing it all this week, actually. So, you know, I, and I have to think about it. So it's the same same stuff. I'm going to get up on stage and be very vulnerable and exposed and, you know, hope that God strike and that I play well. You know, but, uh, there you go. So... Uh, they usually do. It usually comes together. I mean, I'm not lacking an experience, so no. You uh, rise to the occasion, no matter how fucked up you feel. Oh, I shouldn't say that. Well, how bad fine. you feel, sick uh, you feel. I've played with you know 103, you know, temperature, flu, everything. There's, there's nothing I haven't done. So you know, but I, I think it's all all this stuff is great for you personally because I think it makes you tough. And uh, anti-fragile, you know, this is the word. And um, but you've got to be not afraid to put yourself in these situations. So one of the things, know, yeah, yeah, go, go ahead. Mike. Well, I was going to say one other thing that strikes me about your photography um, is it's always captured in black and white, or at least a preponderance is captured in black and white. Um, 
why just that sort of dichotomy? Why not capture the full color spectrum? What what is so interesting about just sort of that bichromatic kind yeah. of approach? Yeah, well, it's one of the oldest questions. You know, I mean, if you look at the history of photography, uh, color as a in photography was always really sneered at and looked down upon. And certainly in the art community until the like early seventies when uh, it started to change up a bit. Uh, because of, uh, oh, I'm trying to think of the photographer's name, it started to become accepted, you know. For me personally, black and white, I was always, I, and I got a couple of explanations for this, was always very powerful. I don't know why things rendered in black and white just seem to have a lot more power than when you render them in color. That's not necessarily as true as it was, say, 50 years ago. But for me, it's always held true. And a lot of photographers actually would prefer to shoot in black and white. It's, it's the classic. It's, I mean, actually, I'll make this statement. Photography is black and white. Image making is color. Right. Okay. You know, and when you go back to the beginnings of photography, it was black and white. What I find interesting, though, in in your art, though, is when you listen to tribal luminescence and then you see the photography, the photography is black and white. And the solo records that you've gone, uh, that you've done, are are very textured. They're very uh, layered with all kinds of musical colors, if I can use that expression. Yeah, okay. Um, Well, that's interesting that you say that, yeah. Well, do you find that? that, that Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's a great point, and it it sort of upsets my my theory, because um, I say the better I get at photography, the longer I do it, and it's kind of making this sort of semi-abstract music I'm making. The two are coming very close together in what they're trying to express. I mean, this book that I've done, The Bones of Chuangzhou, which is all shot in China and traveling all over China, it's fairly abstract. Um, and, you know, it's not pictures of, you know, colorful-looking people at all. It's, it's, it's like extracting art pictures out of China that don't really have anything to do with China. Um, and I, but I feel that a lot of the music I make is sort of darker in intent. It's not bright, happy pop music. It's 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 much more interesting, and in some cases, sort of astringent, you know. Uh, right. And I try, you know, I, I but I, yeah, yeah. I, I'm just thinking about what you're saying because I'm just trying to see. Because I always say, well, they're becoming equivalents of each other, but. Um, but but they they what seem you, to actually how, be how going do you make monochromatic music, <laughs> good in mono. Well, I, well, no, but uh, I mean, I guess you keep it simple. You sort of do a an well, it's old. Darker. It's, you're right. more minor key, you know. If right. you like, I mean, these are real simplifications. Right. But you know, the the attitude in the music, the the abstraction, the, the scales you play, things like that. There's not, you know, this, these are not like you know one six. Uh, four five chord sequence you know these are much in a very different place especially with the kind of textures that i try to create in the loops with these sort of gamelan sounds or whatever it is on whichever track you know they're complex i mean they're set up they don't just fall out of the air i work towards them you know is that sort of a a rebelling against what the police were doing because the police were obviously very successful you know billboard hot 100 singles all over the place huge tours yeah yeah, I, I, yeah. is that a rejection of the police is it just no, a no, different no, no. no I'm okay completely full of pride about the police okay who wouldn't be i mean who, who else in the world has had a run like that people seem to forget we dominated the world for about seven or eight years and sold you know something like 100 million records in the end 
and still going. You know, you, you, you can only feel good about that. So, and I was very good at it, as we all were. We were very good at being the police for as long as we did it. But um, if you try and do your own part, apart from Sting, of course, he's the singer and kind of what he does, um, why would I try to redo that? It would only come in as a, in second place. The police was a phenomenon. It was a unique chemistry of three people that will never be heard again. There was, there's never been another band quite like that. So I feel I have it in me to write really interesting and different music than that. I mean, I grew up being a complete jazz freak. You know, it was only later that I got into more sort of generalized rock playing and, you know, blues and all that stuff. So what I'm doing is 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 who I really am. Not uh, you know I, you know trying to redo the place would be false to myself. Right. Um, I do want to ask you one question about the police. You had said at the end of the reunion tour, or even during the reunion tour, that this was a a sense of closure, and then you you sort of came back on it and said, well. Closure would mean that you get stuck in a museum, and I'm not ready to be stuck in a museum. I mean, yeah, I know, I, I do. I, I sort of regret. Right. I said that to somebody today. Like, I regret ever using the word closure because I just don't like the finality of the word. It's like slam the door, and it also kind of slightly demeans what we achieved. To me, you know, whether we ever play again or not, I have no idea. Probably not. But I like to think of it as a living thing. You know, I'm not. And I don't think any of us are ex-police. We are the police. We're still that band. You know? So that's the way I choose to look at it. I'm not like, oh, God, it's all dead well, and buried. I don't feel that way. You know. Nor should you, because music sort of lives. I mean, we're still it, listening to you know, music from 50 years ago, 100 years ago, right? I can get in an elevator in Shanghai. And what the hell comes on except the police? I go to a restaurant in, you know, fucking Tanzania. And you hear, I mean, it's everywhere. I don't know why the police music in particular, because I can't say I even hear this of the Beatles or the Stones or whoever, but the police stuff seems to be everywhere in the world. Right. I, I've been so many places where I'd walk into a store or something, and what's on, just by bloody coincidence, it's just, it's sort of amazes me, actually, how it's just continued on and on and on. It, never went away. Is it? And maybe the the expression is 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 sort of pedestrian, but is is it sort of mind blowing that you've had such an impact on? I don't I don't want to say humanity, yeah. but but it, it's you know, but <laughs> go when, there, go there. But, but but really, when you when because music does touch people and it touches the soul, it's it's a very powerful thing. Absolutely, it's, no. And thank you for saying that because uh, I really believe that. People right. say, "Well, what have you ever done?" I go, "You know what? We actually, you know, it's, I mean." heavy to say these kind of things, but we actually transformed people's lives. It would come to us sobbing, you know. Uh, you know, I mean, we've gone through all of that, you know, blessed babies, changed countries. <laughs> it went through incredible stuff. I mean, the period that we had, that people were absolutely obsessed with, with us. I mean, you know, I mean, it just makes you sound I was like kids now don't get that, because it was a long time ago, but it was very transformative. The band had a huge effect on that, on the world at that time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Listen, I, I, I grew up through that time, and, and yeah. the police were, were part of the soundtrack. You know, everything was going on. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I, I do want to go back to, to, in fact, the year that I was born, 1968, Eric Burden and the Animals, Love Is. And, oh, God. <clears throat> yeah, I know. 
Um, all right, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> My apologies if I'm making you feel old. But on there you did... I don't feel old, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you did Colored Rain. And yeah. it has this incredibly long... Well, maybe that's a wrong word, but it has a four-minute solo. And, and, and historically, this is when radio and the Beatles were being told, you've got to do a two-and-a-half-minute song and don't bother us with anything else. Right, right. Talk to me about that four-minute solo. And well, yeah, I mean, it was the world's longest guitar solo at the time of all time. Yeah, I haven't listened to it in really... I can't remember when I last heard that. It must have been years ago. That's what we were into. We were all, we were all you know... Look, I was living in Laurel Canyon. It was the late 60s. I mean, how I don't have to really explain this. We were all pretty cosmic at that point in time. Like everyone in the world, all the kids were. So, yeah, it's very much a reflection of that that particular moment, you know. So the long, you know, searching, soul-searching solos, you know. But solos were becoming much longer then. I mean, even Eric in the Cream was starting to do his very long guitar solos. And then... You know, like you had someone like Coltrane in New York who, you know, they wouldn't come in and just do a 16-bar solo. He'd play 30-minute solo. You know, this is where the music was then. You know, these long, you know, transcendent, you know, 30, 40-minute solos, nonstop, just going and going and going. So that was very much in the zeitgeist, I believe, at the time. Right. But it did. You know, so it was natural for me to want to do it. You know, I played very well, and I wanted to play... Be a soloist, and you know that was my form of singing, if you like. Yeah, it, it it just always struck me as as you as an artist, again with the photography and with yeah. uh, the new album, and and even back then, this always had sort of a, a forward thinking or an avant garde kind of uh, approach to what you were doing, and and you know, can, historically in 1968, uh, with mm. the, maybe a few exceptions. Yeah. Two and a half minute songs were the norm, and that, it, it, it just it just was. Yeah. Um, uh, you also mentioned jazz before. Uh, Green Chimneys, the music of Thelonious Monk. Um, what yeah. is what has he meant to you, and and sort of what compelled you to do sort of a I don't want to maybe is it call it a tribute album, but do an album well, in yeah, his name. You know, it's Monk, yeah, yeah, no, no. Well, uh, you know, as I said earlier, like I, I very much. You know, the ages about 14 to 19, I was absolutely obsessed with jazz. You know, I wanted to play jazz guitar, American jazz guitar. Everything I listened to was jazz because it was the hippest music at the time when I started out. You know, the rock scene, as we know it, as it became, didn't exist. So the hippest music around was definitely jazz, American jazz. You know, guys in suits and, you know, button-down shirts and ties and, you know, Jerry Mulligan, Chet Baker, and the Miles and all. This, this was the really hip music. And so as a, you know, impressionable kid in his early teens, that's where I wanted to go. And of course, my instrument was the guitar. And so then I got into people like, you know, Wes Montgomery and Kenny Burrell and Jimmy Rainey and all the great American jazz players. And then I sort of started getting into Miles and then Coltrane and Cannonball Adderley, all the, all this stuff that was around. And, and, you know, you know, Red Jack Kerouac and kind of got that whole flavor so um, that's where. It, oh, what was the question? God, I'm, I'm rambling on now. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> well, no, I was just talking about uh, the importance of Thelonious Monk. Oh yeah, Monk. no, yeah, but, no. Right. Sorry, I, I got it. Yeah, Monk. Yeah. So when I was like 16 or 17, I went to London to see Monk play on this um, jazz bill. Like I don't know if it was jazz at the Philharmonic, but with Dizzy Gillespie and everything. 
and he came out and he played, and I, I, it was like a revelation to me, you know, because all these other great jazz players were playing, but when Monk played, to me, it was, it was like his piano playing just summed up the whole of, you know, America to me. I, I just, it kind of blew me away, and it was funky, you know, with, you know, dissonances and wrong notes and its phrasing and everything. But I thought, my God, you know, at that age, I kind of got it. And it always stayed with me. And, um, yeah, I never played a lot of Monk in my life, but, you know, when I got into making all those solo records and very much into making jazz records, it, it sort of, you know, it's just an idea like, hey, why not make an album of all Monk stuff? Because it's difficult. It's not easy music, and uh, you have to learn that. Some of it is actually very lyrical and melodic. A lot of it is really quite difficult, to, to phrasing and some of the stuff he does. So it was a challenge. It was an interesting musical challenge. A, just to be able to get the music and play it, and, and also try to, you know, sort of possess it for yourself and make it work on the guitar. So I spent about six months, I think, trying out Monk stuff and playing loads of it on the guitar before I, I got around to actually recording the album. You know, I sort of learned all kinds of Monk tunes. There's like over 50 pieces, I think. You know, I still play play some of it. You know, there's quite a few I, I still like to play. Um, I, I do know you have another interview coming up, so I'll, I'll just sort no, of... No, I don't. I'm all right. It's right. This, oh, well, there you go. I, I, I was told it was one every half hour, but... Uh, well, number three. <laughs> uh, well, there you go. Um, well, so, so, all right, so then let me, let me just quickly ask you about One Train Later, which came out in 2006. It's been 11 years. Do you see yourself writing a follow-up to that? And I do, actually. Okay. Um, I don't, you know, I don't know if it would be a follow-up, but it would be another book. I mean, I think about it all the time, actually. I think, what am I doing? I should be, you know. But I, I do have an idea that I'm, we'll see how it goes. I might do something while I'm in Brazil. I, you know, and I'm going to, might do this at the Grammy Museum next week when I do this show. I've written a lot of short stories, uh, all of kind of gallows humor, if you like. And most of them have a guitar in that. They all have a guitar featured in it somewhere. Not necessarily in an obvious way, but there's a guitar that's in the story somewhere. So that's basically a loose theme throughout all these stories. So that's a project I've had going for a while. I'd like to finish it off. I was thinking that I might actually read them next week to the audience. I'm thinking about it. I'll see how it goes this week. <laughs> so yeah. if it's a gallows humor kind of book, it, it it's obviously not a, a memoir like, like the first one then. So no. It, no, I don't necessarily feel the need to do that again. I think, I, I you know, the autobiography was very well received it you know voted best book in music book in england in the year it came out yeah it, it did great um it's been in many countries they made a movie out of it which i don't know if you know about or not yeah yeah, yeah the, uh, the movie yeah so yeah you know i mean a i'm sort of amazed that i actually wrote the book and b then i got a film made out of it so i felt pretty good about all of that um but I do feel a, a very much a nagging sort of guilt need to, to write another one, uh, get it out there. It's just, you know, it's always time, time to do it. You know, this might be the time. Well, maybe that's what I should do next year. Yeah. Well, that's what, that's what I was going to ask you, because you've got Tribal Luminescence that, that's coming out uh, yeah. this year. Um, 
you're going to go off to Brazil, obviously going to bring the camera. You, you've done, yeah. you know, uh, 30 or so art, exhi- uh, you know, photography exhibits. Um, where do we go from here? I mean, what I sort of challenges you at this point? Is it, do you, I mean, yeah. do you think retirement well, at any point? No, 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 no. no. They put me in the grave fighting. Um, no, I mean, I, I basically uh, intend to just carry on doing all of this. I don't really see an end to it. You know, I mean, I think it'll involve a lot of travel. I mean, the one thing that would keep me in place might be writing another book. Um, I w- might do a lot of traveling next year because I'm a bit worried about the state of the world and where it's all going and how much of it's going to be possible. You know, obviously I've done a great deal, but um, I like to be out there, you know, in in the mountains or wherever in Asia and, uh, you know, photographing because I find it thrilling and sort of exciting and, uh, you know, that it's creative. Yeah. You know, I, I'm going to Brazil soon and I might stick around for a couple of months and I'm definitely going back to um, China in October and will no doubt make another trip out from there, you know, while I'm there. Yeah. It seems to be happening every October now, every year. It's to be about my fifth or sixth year in a row. <laughs> um, it's crazy. I, I never thought I'd ever go to China in my life. Now I am there every five minutes. Well, you know, it's also got to be, um, I don't want to say rewarding, but it's got to be fun that you're able to go there now because you, you go back to the yeah. 70s and 80s, and as far yeah. as I know, unless you were Richard Nixon, they weren't letting you win. No, no, yeah, you couldn't have done it. Well, you know, it's it's interesting, and it's an interesting subject because uh, I go there a lot, and, you know, I have a fairly political mind, you know, so I'm, I'm thinking about all, you know, what's going on in the world and politics and all that, so I'm very observant about it, and see how it is but i always go to shanghai where i always get i'm very comfortable and shanghai is quite incredible it's so high-end and shishi and beautiful and uh it's, it's a, you know really it's like the most it feels like the most advanced city in the world it's really slick <laughs> it's incredible actually um so i always start there and and i mean you see a lot of very affluent Chinese there and people living at really high level but then I go off into the wilds and you know I've been to Tibet I've been out in the west a lot I've been in Yunnan I've been to the south I've seen the southwest lots of different parts um, which is then it gets really much more it's very different it's like more like old style China and I find that really kind of interesting you start getting out into the villages and you don't feel like it's really ever changed that much you know so, yeah, which is which is strange because we're we've always been told that it's communist China and there's there's one one size fits all over there and and um, it's all that's all rubbish you know right. and I, I I'm always trying to tell people you know China gets a really bad rap in the West when you get there and you get out you get really out there with the people they're very sweet they love their kids they're very funny you know they're kind of brilliant actually very smart kind of canny people um you know they get this rap because of the chinese government and you know which is a whole other conversation but in fact you know they're just like anyone else and that's in my travels i found when you really start traveling all over the world you find that basically people are i mean it's such a cliche they really are sort of all the same you know you don't ever find people completely alien like from another planet it doesn't you know mostly they're the same the chinese are very you know, gregarious and friendly and family and, uh, you know, 
incredible history, the most advanced civilization, really. Yeah, no, anything you can think of was done in China about a thousand years ago. No, it, it really is interesting how uh, you know the the politics and everything controls the the dialogue that 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 is sent. You know, as a Canadian, um, you know, as a Canadian, I always hear Americans talk about how the Canadian health system is horrible and blah, and it's like, well. How about if you actually came here and experienced it? And, and we, of course, we hear the same thing about the Chinese. Well, the Chinese are horrible. Well, yeah, but once you experience it, that's not what you see, right? It's just not true. It's yeah. just not true. No, I say they get a really bad rap. You know, you read the papers and it's all this, you know, what the president's doing, the crackdowns and all that. But, I mean, it's mostly in Beijing. Outside of that, when you get in the country, I, you don't feel that at all. Just feel what these people are so sweet, you know, most of them. That's my experience. Yeah, it really is. And um, and since you mentioned the movie, of course, Can't Stand Losing You, Surviving the Police, which I watched, uh, was it last year or two years ago when, uh-huh. when it came out? Yeah. It was very, very compelling. And it was also, at times, frustrating to watch because you would see scenes where Sting would be giving an interview while you were in the... Uh, green room, I guess, for the lack of a better word, and, and he's saying, "Well, we're we're done. This is never gonna." And you're like, "Well, the guys are just sitting right there." Like, <laughs> um, I know it's incredible. It's all such bullshit, actually. You know, because we're all good friends, right? And, you know, I had two emails from Sting last week. So, um, but you called it surviving the police. Was it was I, it really no, that bad? Well, okay, no, it was I, called that no, though. But no, no, really, here's the truth. As okay. you know, it's the commercial world. It's, the book was called One Train Later, and that's what the film should have been called. But right. you know, you get into the hands of a film company, and they're all so frightened about how well it's all going to do. So they wanted to put, you know, we ended up with that. It wasn't what I wanted to call it. And surviving the police? You're joking, boy. That wasn't my idea. I fought against that <laughs> because, because it. Uh, I don't, well, how how can you characterize it? it it, it no, makes it, it sound was, like it's so horrible, and it's like, well, it, uh, yeah, there must have been some horror, but it must it can't it couldn't have been that bad. I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, we had more money, women, and every fame than anyone else in the world at that time. I mean, what was so horrible about you know? It's just, it's, 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 it's just I know that's just misthinking on the you know the kind of people of, you know you work with in the, the industry. In the industry, um, they, they just don't get it. Yeah. Would you like? I, I know that going on tour with the band might be more complicated because you know there's a whole thing. And but would you like to at least record another song or or five more songs or or just get in there one last time with with, with well, Stuart and Sting? Okay. Um, I can't get on the phone and go, "Hey, man, I think we should go and record another song." <laughs> it just doesn't work like that. I wish it did. It's also complicated, unfortunately. You know, I mean, we were a band that. You know, just, you know, took over the world for as long as we did. And then, you know, off we went. And uh, it was amazing that we came back to do the reunion tour, actually. Yeah, it but was. Great. But, of course, you know, I wouldn't fight that, you know. They'd have to pay me a lot of money, but... Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean... That... Who knows? Life is full of surprises. I, I don't know. It's always, we'll never do it again. We'll never, you know. Uh, so there you go. Well, it's always good to say you'll never do it again because when you do do it again, you can sell the tickets for double the price. So, well, that's it, yeah. <laughs> I can't. Well, it always uh, comes down to money in the end, and you know we'll see how things go because I'm sure there are plenty of people around our situation that would heavily uh, encourage Sting to uh, 
do the police again because that's where the money is, you know, big yeah. money. Yeah. It is. Ultimately, it's, it's what tends to move things, yeah. as you know. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, uh, Andy, thank you for, for, for this yeah. time tonight. It's, it's been a, an absolute pleasure. And, of course, uh, Tribo Luminescence is coming out uh, March 24th. There you go. Great. Uh, thank you. Thank you. All right, mate. Cheers. Good luck. Cheers. Thank bye. you. Bye-bye. And there you have it, folks. My interview with Andy Summers of The Police. The new album is Triboluminescence. I will be right back after this with Paul Dean of Loverboy. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. I'm Mick Garris. When it comes to horror, you might know me as a writer, producer, and director. But I also love making people open up. I'm getting together with the most fascinating people in fright filmmaking. I'm going to pick their brains and find out what they know. But if they've got any secrets they're determined to keep, I have ways of making them talk. Download new episodes of Postmortem with Mick Garris every other Wednesday at PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe on iTunes. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Welcome back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. I certainly hope you enjoyed the first part of the show with Andy Summers of The Police. This being the very first episode, we are supersizing it. Going to give you more bang for your buck. So we're going to move over to Paul Dean of Loverboy. So many good things. First of all, I'm Canadian. They're Canadian. It is Monday here on Rock Talk. I am working for the weekend, and they are working for the weekend, but mostly my first interview in 1980 was with Gene Simmons of Kiss. That's where it all sort of began for me. And their first concert was opening for Kiss in Vancouver in 1979. So we share all this fun stuff together. And of course, during the interview, Paul talks about the new uh, their new single, Stop the Rain, but we talk also about, yep, opening for Kiss, and his solo album where he covers a Kiss song or a song that Paul Stanley and Bruce Kulick of Kiss wrote called Sword and Stone. So just lots of great Kiss content, lots of great Loverboy content, lots of great Canadian content, just lots of great content. And so with that, without further ado, I give you the one, the only, from Loverboy, guitarist Paul Dean. We are speaking with guitarist Paul Dean of Loverboy. The new single, of course, is Stop the Rain. Paul, a great, great pleasure to speak with you. Yeah, and as my, it's my pleasure, Mitch, actually. So uh, what's going on? Where are you, by the way? I am in Montreal. Okay, yeah, I thought maybe 315 was Montreal. Well, 315 is my dial-in number, which is uh, the Skype thing. So I'm actually a 514 area code, but... Uh, Actually, yeah. that makes even more sense. Yeah, yeah, it does, doesn't it? But it's it's sort of one uh, one Canadian guy talking to another, and you know, there, there's so much, especially growing up in Montreal and watching much music all through the '80s. Uh, I've got a much sort of greater appreciation than than a lot of the American audience that's going to be listening to this. So hopefully, by the end of this, we can give them the exact same um, appreciation that uh, that I have. Yeah. But um, we'll, we'll we'll educate the suckers, will we? Yeah, that's the whole point, right? <laughs> so so let's look back right now. I mean, right now you've got this new single, "Stop the Rain." You had some like it hot in uh, 2016, I guess it was, and also um, 
you know, there was Keep It Up, there was Hurtin', there was, there, there's a bunch of singles. Talk to me about sort of the release schedule for the band right now, because you're not sort of putting them together on an album of 10 songs. They're sort of going out one at a time. What, what's sort of the thinking and the process behind all of that? Well, you know, I've, I've been, I've, I've read a couple of, a couple of pretty interesting blogs and I, and I go, you know, I think this, this makes a lot of sense to me. This is kind of how I've been leaning. Uh, and it's like, who has time really to sit down and listen to a whole album? Anyhow, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll download an album and it'll take me, I don't know, a week to get through it because I'm, uh, I don't know, maybe it's attention span or whatever it is, but it's, there's so much music out there. And we're we're happy if we can get a little bit of interest, or preferably a whole lot. But if we can get a little bit of interest in in something that we're doing, because most people want to hear the old stuff anyway. You know, most people are, and and thankfully they're they love our old stuff just as much as we do. So we uh, we basically the way I look at it, the way the band looks at it, we're putting out stuff for our fans, and we let them know through Facebook and through our through our uh, website that we're we've got some new music, but. Uh, so we're just we release a two and one we get it done basically and we had we had three songs one new song hurting which was uh, recently written and some like it hot which was a which was a demo for in uh, before we signed a deal I guess back in eighty eight eighty nine maybe that's when we recorded that tune and I thought that song was gone. I never, I couldn't find it. I, I went through the uh, to the studio and looking for it. I couldn't find it, and somehow it made it into. I, I had a stash of 232 inch tapes with an average of four songs each. So I didn't, I didn't even know it was there. So anyway, a couple of years back, we did a, uh, a conversion from the analog tape into digital, and that it took a couple of months to do that. And as the guy did it, I wasn't there as he did it, but as he did, he made a little list of tunes. And I don't even know if he called it something like it hot, but I was going through and I went, oh, there it is. And uh, it was it was a kind of rough, you know, but uh, fixed it up, added some guitar parts and rearranged it and turned out, I thought it turned out pretty good. And uh, it's the same thing for... Uh, uh, stop the rain it's going through that same that same process of i bet you there's another undiscovered gym in here and sure enough there it was and it, it was uh was completely done with keyboards and and drums and bass uh the studio drums and bass with with doug on the on the keyboards playing all that stuff and an amazing what i thought an amazing lead vocal for mike there was two or three tracks and uh i listened to the one this is perfect it sounds incredible so I, I put a background harmony on it and a bunch of guitar stuff and uh, rearranged it and cut some stuff out and added some stuff, you know, of course. The edit king, and uh, I, I think it turned out pretty good. I'm pretty happy with it. I especially like the video that we got. Yeah, and because you were running a contest for fans to make a video for for the song, which I've seen a few of them on, on YouTube. There's, there's a lot of sort of artistic visions for what the song was, which I thought was, was, was charming, actually. It was pretty cool. I mean, you know, I, I did the last couple of videos, and I, I really enjoyed making Hurt, and I was just around Vancouver and kind of had a little bit of theme theme to it, you know. And uh, actually, uh, a fan made another video to it, to Hurt, and I went, oh, this is good. It was, it was cuts from... Uh, 
for movies, different movies and that. So I didn't know, don't know if he had the rights. I didn't know if it would be appropriate for us to put our handle on it, but I still thought it was really well done. And it turns out that the guy who did that video, he submitted one for stop the rain and it's the, the aliens one. And we just went, this is amazing. It was hilarious. I, I couldn't wait to see how it ended. It was seriously. I thought it was really good. It is really good. And, yeah. uh, so he, uh, he, he wins the guitar. We had a signed guitar. I mentioned it to Mike. I says, what do you think about this idea for a contest? He says, Oh, you mean get someone else to make our video? Brilliant. I went, yeah, okay, let's see if it works. Let's hope somebody steps up and actually, you know, tries some. And we got some, uh, got some really cool entries and, uh, the alien one one. It's a it's a lot cheaper than uh, than uh, recoupment costs and getting everybody to uh, to pay for a for a video. But um, the last album going back it was 2014, which was unfinished business. Which again, I guess, was sort of you going through these boxes of tapes and coming up with songs that had sort of been lying around. Um, will these songs, you know, stop the rain? Since you're saying it's the same, will there be sort of an unfinished business too coming down the road? Uh, I don't know. I don't know that we have enough stuff. I've, I've got a. I'm sitting on a bunch of new stuff right. that uh, I'm going. To, I'm going to spring on Mike one of these days and see if he uh, see if he bites. And because uh, it's really, he's got to sing it. He's got to. He's got to interpret it. He's got to feel it. He's got to really present the lyrics from his his perspective and from his heart and soul. You know, can't be from mine. If he if he sees what I'm writing and agrees, says. Yeah, I feel that same way about that. Or, or he may say, "I think it's a really good start. Why don't we change this and change that?" And I'm, uh, I'm always 100% open to that kind of stuff. Because Mike is a he's a really great uh, co-writer. Over the years, we've written some pretty cool songs. So yeah, and is he... I'm totally up for that. If he wants to, if he wants to, I don't know if he wants to do it. Any, if he wants to do any new music, but. Uh, He's, we're always talking about it. And, you know, I keep saying, well, remember this tune here that was presented to us a few years back? He said, no, I don't remember that. I'd sing him a couple of verses. Oh, yeah, yeah, I kind of like that tune. We should maybe look at doing that. So you just never know. But right now, it's we're looking at, uh, we're, we're, we had three new songs, and uh, they're out. They're out. Is there, for you, though, that, that artistic vision of, I've got to keep producing things because that's what a musician does? Because I, we'll be honest, when a fan shows up and they buy a ticket, if if you don't hear working for the weekend or turn me loose, they're going home with a you know a sad look on their face. So you have to play those. But for you personally, though, is there this? I've got to get this new music. I've got to be creative. Yeah, I'm. I'm always. It's like my my birthday party a couple of years back. I might give a little speech, and he says, "This one's to Paul Dean, the guy who never stops working." I love it. I thought that was a pretty interesting testament, but it's it's true. I'm I am. If anybody's driven, it would be me. I'm I'm always doing something. If I'm not working on my guitars or trying to get the magic tone or or find a replacement for it in case one of my my beauties goes missing, which I've lost three or four guitars over the years through theft and whatever. That's what I do. I I love to mix other people's stuff. I did a, an album with Greg Godovitz a few years back from the famed Godel. And um, called uh, Amuse Me. I played guitar on it and and uh, finished it up for him, mixed it and that, and uh, pretty and and really happy with that. I love doing that. So it's not just Lover Boy. It's, 
I have a I have a solo album if I choose to go that way. But I'm hoping that maybe Michael here the tunes as I was saying earlier. And he'll go, yeah, let's let's do them as a band. So. Well, perfect because that that's but a perfect I, lead into my next question, if I can, because your last solo album, Blackstone, is 1997, so it goes back 20 years now. Um, you know, you did three almost successively: 89, 95, 97. You, are we going to start doing more? Because you, you just said you have enough material, so what's... what's... I, I do. I, I, I have 10 songs, and uh, they're pretty interesting. They're pretty different. I got one that it's a, it's a kind of a Spanish-slash-Mexican theme and a couple of rap sort of things. It's a really heavy metal, boss-of-the-wall guitar stuff and a couple of reggae things. And uh, I, I got a couple of ballads, but, you know, you kind of got to be... In my, my to my ear, you, it would be so much better if it was if Mike were singing the songs. I mean, I can sing them and, and they're cool, but you know, I'm I'm hoping that he will at least maybe listen to those tunes and go, yeah, let's let's record that. So, but so I don't know. I never say never. I mean, I could have another solo solo album, but um, yeah, maybe. Well, well, okay. So let me ask you about that then, because uh, and I and I do want to dig into hardcore and that stuff in a minute, but. You've mentioned that it would sort of sound better if Mike sang them, or it's just more of a, there's more of a cachet with Mike. What is it about him? You've been with him for, what is it, 37 years, 35 years now, 37 years? I mean, a long time. Well, we, what I met him, him in 78. Right. I met him in 78, so we're looking at 39 years, almost. But you were still in Steelheart at that time. A streetheart. No, I, street was, I, was, I was just uh, asked to leave. Actually. Okay. Okay, so that run that time. So, so I was on the rebound, and what I was doing then was I was, I had had it with with uh, nurturing lead singers. I'd, I'd been with a lot of bands, thirteen, fourteen bands by that point, and always problems with the singer, you know. And, and uh, so I said, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna do my own thing, and then I heard Mike sing. He we was down. He came down to I had a rehearsal hall or a writing room really, and uh, I was playing with a bass player, and I had a drum. Uh, a, bunch of drummers came by and actually Doug was working with me too on keyboards. He was embellishing a couple of my demos. Uh, but then I heard, I heard Mike sing and I went, Oh man, <laughs> one more time. And, and uh, we clicked Im- immediately. The first night we got together, we wrote a couple of songs and that's like, wow. And, uh, we, we really hit it off. So I don't know. Uh, I don't know where that rephrase that question again. He told me that question again. I think I got it. Well, no, I was just asking about the importance. I mean, you know, there's a lot of bands as as we get older where they're down to one original member or sometimes even no original members in this still. I mean, if Mike walks away from Loverboy, you're not going to go out there with your own version of the band. I mean, it's done. Well, who knows? I mean, <laughs> I can't imagine. Why, why would Mike, why would he leave? I mean, you know. Yeah, that's a good point. You know why yeah. would he leave? Um, He's I, I don't I don't think. But now I remember what your question was. Hey. Here's here's the deal with Mike. When n- not so much not so much, I mean I was there for every vocal take right from the get go right from the very first track, and I would when Bruce Fairburn was was uh, producing and and uh, I would hide out of Mike's and we would leave the talk back off and I would go a little bit sharp. Uh, try this phrasing, blah, 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 you know, and this lyric's not working and, you know, can we try it this way? And, and not to, not to take anything away from Bruce who had a million ideas as well, but, uh, 
So I was, I was there on the floor hiding behind the glass. Uh, I was there for everything that might, well, everything that everybody did, except maybe some of the keyboard stuff. But, um, but now the way the technology is, he sits beside me and we put in these in ears so you can't hear, you know, you can hear what's on the track more than what's in the room. But I get to sit there right beside him as he's singing. And you can't, you can't replace that, that give that, give that opportunity to any fan. I mean, it makes me, keeps me his biggest fan because I, I get to experience that of him singing his ass off right beside me. I mean, literally two feet away. And we're both looking at the screen and here comes the part and you know, blah, blah, blah. So it's, I'm, I continue to be, he's got a killer voice. He's got, he's got something about his singing, especially, well, I'd say, especially on the, the ballads and the slow stuff, he kills it. He just gets inside it, inside the lyric, you know, and, and he gets that, he really communicates the feeling. He, I don't know how, um, something you can't quantify you can't analyze it's just it's just it's a feeling you just get that feeling when he sings and it and it comes across on record too but to be there in the moment of listening to it and you know it's just sort of, then you go back and say well let's try that line again or yeah, maybe that lyric's not working same thing i used to do behind the wall you know but now it's uh it's it's a really great relationship that we we've had over the years of uh of working together now it's super cool super cool because it's like we're right there you know and and 40 years going on 40 years so so let's go back a little bit in time hardcore 1989 you've got uh, a song written by paul stanley and bruce kulik sword and stone you've got brian adams writing on there um who else uh john bon jovi shows up on the album uh, talk uh, you know talk to me a little bit about that album and how it came together and, and, and sort of why it came together and how do you sort of get, you know, Kiss to donate a track because this Sword and Stone song was demoed for Kiss but never recorded by Kiss and yet you have it. How, how did that all work out? I'm trying to remember the name of the other, the main writer. Desmond Child. D- Desmond Child. Desmond Child was in the writing session when I went to New Jersey to hang out with John Bon Jovi and Richie Sambora. And Desmond was there as well. And we worked on a couple of tunes. We we wrote uh, Notorious, and there was three or four other things that, that never saw the light of the day. And I have no copy or nothing. I have no idea what they are. They may be on a cassette. I probably have them on a cassette. I have a few hundred cassettes lying around in storage somewhere. So they might be there. But uh, uh, Desmond gave me the tune. He says, you might want to consider this one for Lover Boy. And uh, I took it to Mike and Mike went, he, he didn't hear it. And he didn't hear any of the tunes. He, well, he literally heard all the songs, but it, he didn't think that they fit for him. And I went, at that point, I went, well, hell, I'll, play, I'll sing them then. And that was as simple as that. And uh, Brian Tulad McLeod was playing drums on it and uh, and producing my, my vocals. And, and uh, that was an amazing thing. I miss that guy so much. But that, that was the coolest session to have uh, Brian behind the board. And some of the techniques he had for fixing the vocals up if you're a little bit flat, and some of the stuff he was doing, I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. It's everything that you do now on your laptop in, in two seconds, but it was 
really so far ahead of his of his time it was a it was a real honor to work with him he would listen back to the track or you play this drum track and he would because we did, we never played to a click it was always free time just just play it from your soul and he'd listen back and he would go oh it slows down there a little bit okay so he would take the tape and he would cut a piece of the tape out of the two inch tape so that it wouldn't slow down he would take out the little the little where it, where it dragged maybe three or four cuts between the beats I mean, we do, like I say, we do all that now with, with, with your mouse. But at the time, it was like, whoa, this is, I would have never thought that you could do that, you know, at the time. So he taught me a lot. He, was, he had this, a really cool studio on his boat, too. He had a 16-truck studio on his boat with his Marshall cabinet in the, in the hold underneath. He had this houseboat where it could sleep six and that. And we used to go out and watch the, the fireworks display on English Bay all the time in it. But uh, yeah, he was a he was a, a real cool dude. I miss him a lot. Now you you did mention that you were down there with uh, John Bon Jovi and Richie Sambor. Of course, they did the Under the Gun um, track that appears on the album. Uh, what was the purpose of that? Were you trying to write stuff for Bon Jovi? Were they trying to write stuff for you, or were you guys you guys just sort of hanging out because that was the sort of the cool thing to do? Well, the, the Under the Gun thing was I was recording. It was just a convenience, really. I was recording. We were both in Little Mountain Sound in Vancouver, and I was in the I was in the, the big room, and they were in the little room doing overdubs, just doing vocals. They'd already cut all our tracks, and uh, I, I can't remember that they were working with Bob Rock, and of course, I've been working with Bob Rock off and on forever, you know, since eight, 1980. And uh, I heard John playing harmonica, and I went, "Hey, man, you want to play a little bit on this track?" He said, "Absolutely." So we did. That's as simple as that. And uh, I don't think, I think that was the only time he appeared on the record. I, I don't. I, I believe so. Well. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it was just, just a fluke, just a lucky thing that he was there, you know. But still, you, you, you got you got sort of the hottest artist of the, of the time to, to appear on your album. Um, I want to look at back also at, at Loverboy's history, loving every minute of it. Uh, the album. Okay. There's a lot of stuff, especially for a hard rock fan, that that's very, very uh, intriguing on this one. You've got Mutt Lang, who is sort of the producer du jour, writing the song, um, but not producing the album, which which I find very interesting. Jonathan Cain, of course, of uh, Journey, and of course Brian Adams. But here's the one that gets me. You've got Tom Allam producing, and he does Judas Priest. He's done some stuff with Sabbath, he's done some stuff with Def Leppard, you know, on through the night. How did how did sort of a hard rock Canadian band sort of tap the metal producer of the day? How did that relationship come together? And then what was it like working with him? Because the album he made, it was, I don't need to tell you, it's, it's phenomenal. I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, you know, I... I read it. I was watched watched an interview on MTV or or Much Music or read it somewhere, and it was a quote from Billy Gibbons. He says, "More guitar, gotta have more guitar." I'm like, you know, you're right. No, no, nothing to take away from Doug, who is the most amazing musician I've ever played with, bar none. Um, I just said to myself, "I want more guitar. It's got to be. Let's do a riff album." It still have, hopefully, still have some melodies and some cool keyboard parts and all that other stuff. But let's let's make a guitar album, and who better to produce a guitar album or co-produce, however you want to look at it, than Tom Allen? So we we <clears throat> somebody, I guess Bruce Bruce Allen called him up and said, 
you know, Tom and Loverboy, and uh, he came down to rehearsal, and uh, we rehearsed. We were rehearsing at a warehouse in North Van. <clears throat> Pardon me. I think we probably did a month pre-production with him, or a couple of weeks at the very least, and uh, we had a little 16 track set up and a board and you know effects. And I remember him. <laughs> it was, his approach was so different from mine, in that I'm I come from the Doors slash Eagle school of of mixing and producing and it's super dry drums in your face, nothing on the drums, nothing on the vocals, maybe a little echo, a little doubling guitars dry, except for the effects that, you know, that you use like the, like the guitar. I always, not always, but a lot of times use an echo just for, to fill it out. And, but, uh, and then he would, he would get behind the board and he would pump a ton of, re- a ton of reverb on everything. And I go, no, this is not right. This is not how we sounded, but he was cool. I mean, <laughs> he would turn it up and I would turn it down and we uh, somehow we made it but he was what a funny guy man he was the funniest guy his favorite saying was change nothing immediately and <laughs> I just thought that was the funniest thing and, and he had he had this uh, uh, a, a great staff working with him and we we sat in uh, in Little Mountain that was the <clears throat> excuse me one of the first digital albums ever to be made and it took forever and what a chance we took and in hindsight it was like wow what an expensive undertaking that was because what happened was two weeks in we had all the beds done and all of a sudden the the sony machine the, the 48 track or 24 track i can't remember i think it was probably a 24 it started kicking out spitting out errors all over so there was glitches and pops on every track and we're going, but we just recorded everything. We put our heart and soul into these bands. We got the amazing bass, drums, keyboards, guitars, and even some lead vocals. And what? So our road manager, Doug Grover, at the time, he took the tapes down to L.A. and had them. Somehow they created, they fixed all the errors. I can't imagine the job. He probably worked on it for two weeks, twenty-four hours a day with different guys, and they finally got it together. So. In the, but in the meantime, while while we're while we're this is going on, we've got the studio locked out in Vancouver, so we're paying full day rate on that, and we're paying full day rate on it. Oh man, what a nightmare! But in the end, it, it was it was it turned out okay with the the digital thing. I mean, on the on Destination Heartbreak and and this could be the night, and especially those two where there's a lot of space and you can really hear you know the the breaths and that, but but. Just to to and and the way we tapped into Mutt Lang was was uh, we were at uh, Morn Heights outside of Montreal, right? Which unfortunately we, is has disappeared now and is rotting it's, it's away. History. Yeah, I know. I've heard I've heard that. It's yep. very sad. Yeah, you can see it on YouTube. A, it's terrible. We had a ma- there's a massive legacy come out of that studio, and uh, so I think it, to my to my ear, based on the on the synchronicity with the, the police did their album, which I thought was an unbelievable album. Even though there was a bit of distortion on some of the hi-hat parts, I went, you know what? I can forgive that because overall this album sounds incredible. Technically, I mean, musically, there's no question, but te- from a technical standpoint, sounded incredible. The top end, and, and it was like, it was one of my go-to albums for reference every time I'd put a sister, uh, uh, you know, checking on my car stereo or something, I'd put on Tea in the Sahara and, or something like that. And killer bottom end. I still still go to that song, still do, for, for a reference. And so we really wanted to work with Mutt Lang, but Mutt was busy. He w- wasn't interested or whatever. But uh, 
he somehow we got we got in touch with Mike Shipley, who was his main engineer. And what a what a cool guy! He's unfortunately no longer with us. He, he, he passed a few years back, but what a killer engineer! And so we were in Morn Heights. We were there for two weeks, and we tried a bunch of stuff with the drums and playing to a click and playing with a sample and doing all that all that stuff that that Mutt and and Mike were famous. Mike Shipley were famous for that that massive Def Leppard sound and 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 cars and ACDC and all this amazing albums that they'd done. I so I don't know if Mike was working with them all all those ones, but just to be tap, sort of tapped into Mutt Lang get a little bit of his his input through mike and mike was great what a what a great engineer producer well he, he had the insight the at his a very important uh contribution of his was to know that there's no there's no singles here yet or if there if there are singles there's not enough or there's not the key single we need something. So we phoned up his buddy, Mutt Lang. He says, you got anything for the boys? He says, oh, let me see what I can put together. So a couple of days later, we're still in Warren Heights. We still got a couple more weeks of overdubs to do in that. And uh, it's Mutt Lang on the phone. Oh, hi, Mutt. How's it going? Oh, pretty good. Blah, blah, blah. Check out this tune. So he puts, it, he puts the Love and Every Minute of it on system, which I guess he recorded himself in a couple of days, and uh, put the phone up to it. And I went, oh, man, this is amazing. He says, what do you think? I says, are you kidding? This is the greatest. We could, you're going to give us, or, you know, it's, give us this tune. We we got a, an exclusive on this tune. You're not going to give it to Def Leppard or somebody. And he says, that's yours. So then we then we hooked up a, we, I couldn't hear the bottom end. I had no idea what the kick or, this, or the bass was doing. I could hear the melody and I could hear the whoa, whoa's and the lyrics and everything. It would not sing in all the backgrounds and all the lead. And so amazing singer, this guy. And uh, guitars and everything else along with it. So the next couple of days go by and we're trying to figure it out. And so we, we got him to, through his engineer at his studio and our engineer at our studio, they hooked up a phone line so that he could, he could put it directly into the phone line from the, from the speaker. Oh, I don't know how they did it. Can't remember how we did it in our end. But at least it was kind of a 80, 80% there. So he could sort of make out the kick drum and the, okay, well, this is how it goes. Okay. And then we took the track. We took the, it was, we recorded it onto a cassette. We took the cassette in and Matt listened to the cassette, played along to the cassette and we recorded the tune. And that's what you hear. That's the only song that survived that session. We redid everything else. Actually, that's not true. Or is it? No. <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know. It's so many songs, but, uh, so, and then we took it to Vancouver and we, uh, and we we finished it up, and 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 it's last. By the way, it's, it's funny you mentioned Def Leppard because I actually could really hear that song in that sort of Def Leppard interpretation. I could really hear Joe Elliott doing that. So I'm glad you guys uh, got it because it, uh, it it's just a killer. oh it was a you know or it's a game Carrie Underwood. Yeah. It could be Carrie Underwood or any number of country acts today doing that song. I'm surprised that no country act has actually covered that. Because that is a country song, a mile-wide country song for 2017. You know, I mean, yeah. listen to if you listen to Carrie Underwood's her her, uh, her her theme songs for the football games, it's loving every minute of it, basically. Yeah, you're right. I'm suing. No, I. No. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're right. Well, actually, uh, there's there's a couple of things that that brings up because you mentioned the police, and I recently interviewed uh, Andy Summers of the Police. Uh, nice. 
Yeah, but that was, it was a great interview, and and he was he's just absolutely pleasant. But uh, it never occurred to me that you would be sort of a fan of his playing and stuff, or or of the Police. So, uh, I, since you are, because you you've been listening to Synchronicity, what is it about Andy's tone and and his playing that that attracted to you to him? I mean, how do you sort of rate him as a guitar player? To be honest, I didn't pay any attention to the guitar. Okay. I, I, I wasn't listening for that. I was I was listening more to the the bass, and okay. and Copeland's drumming. Whoa, that was to me was and and of course Sting's vocal. And here's Sting. Imagine this as a musician. He's singing perfectly in tune, and he's playing a fretless bass, completely counterpoint to what he's singing, also in perfect tune, in live. It's like I just go, oh, I quit. This guy is so amazing. With, especially with the police, but that was that was the, the thing for me, and I I loved the reggae thing. And Matt was it? He was all over Copeland. His 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 style, you know, with all the little fills and all the little symbols all that stuff that that he would do, and that Matt was all over that, and still is. It's yeah, I would say, uh, and Billy Cobham are, are the two biggest influences in Matt's uh, style. Yeah, well, it, you, you you know, you can't. You can't fault anybody in that band. It, it was just three guys with so much talent that came together at the right time, and and it's 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 you know unmatchable. You almost. know, you know, it, it's it's funny that you say that that about his guitar playing because I should really, I should really correct that because and, and this is without a word of a lie. I was listening to to Tina Sahara last night, and I would finally zone in on the guitar because you you know half the time you think it's a keyboard, but then you go, wait a minute. Those are all guitar parts, all these tiny little echo things and little embellishments and flourishes and, and rhythms and yeah, it's what a great uh, what a great style. It's kind of like kind of like uh, the Edge, you know. He has a he has a style in, in a, another three piece guitar player guy who has a completely different and do a lot with echo and and effects, you know, big big uh, and totally not unique. really influenced by them, but right. Um, speaking of, of influence, I, 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 I do want to get over to the sort of the, the big song or certainly the one that, that gets, you know, picked up in soundtracks and this and that working for the weekend. And of course, being in Montreal, there's, we've always been told in, in this city that, you know, Paul Dean was walking around Montreal one day and this song came to him. Now, first of all, is that true? <laughs> is that sort of the genesis of the song you were walking around Montreal? No, it was. Okay. It was the finality. It was the finality of the song. Okay. Actually, I was in my hotel room in Montreal, and I had all these parts for working for the weekend, different key changes, little parts, and it was just, I, it was like a, a, a jigsaw puzzle that I couldn't solve, and I, it just finally came to me. The, the, what I, the way I traveled in those days, long, long before computers, was I had a, I had a, a ghetto blaster that I played my guitar through. Was a little, just a little tiny, um, really small, little tiny little speaker Toshiba guy, but it had an input in, so I could plug my guitar in. And if you cranked it, it would distort just in the really best tone. And then I, then I carried a metronome before they had electronic metronome, so that would be my drums. And now then I would just sing along to it, and then I would record that onto another tiny little cassette player that had a microphone built into it. So that was my, my writing the way I wrote now. Oh, to get back to the simple days, you know. And wouldn't wouldn't um, that be nice to get back to to those days? I had I had one guitar, owned one guitar, one amp, two ghetto blasters, and a metronome, you know. And that was it. And with my effects and a couple of the wah wah pedal, and that was it. But uh, no distractions. 
very, very simple. So, so talk to me that, about that song, though. I mean, because I can't imagine Lover Boy today without that song in the repertoire. In fact, I, do you think you'd even be around in 2017 if that song just hadn't hit? I mean, it's 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 just sort of not, one of those... not at not at the level we're at. Right. Just no way. But I mean, when when you look at it, going back to Love in Every Minute of it, which was in the uh, the national national car uh, TV ad that we did last year. And I was not working for the weekend. It wasn't turning me loose. They wanted love in every minute of it. And what are we going to say? No, you're going to have to use working for the weekend. We jumped at it. I went, not only are, are you, we're, we're, they're going to pay us to do this. Are you kidding me? And then to get the exposure that we got, I, I was just, I was over the moon on that. That was so cool. But uh, you were working for the weekend. It started out with a lyric and it was, I've told this story a million times, but uh, I was walking down on, on the beach in, in uh, Kitts Beach in Vancouver uh, in uh, 19, 1980, probably, or 81, whenever the first album had, had already come out. I was just, it was a Wednesday afternoon. I was walking down towards the beach and it was deserted. I said, where the hell is everybody? I, I guess they're waiting for the weekend. Oh, Bingo. Waiting, everybody's waiting for the weekend. That's a that's a pretty cool lyric. Let's see if I can do something with that. So I I had the makings of it. I had a theme at least, and uh, so I we started rehearsing it and writing it and breaking it down and trying to restructure it and put it all together, trying to solve the puzzle of all the key changes and the little parts, <laughs> the little excuse me, the little parts. And Mike says, "Well, waiting for the weekend." We said, "What do you think about calling it working for the weekend?" I went. Uh, yeah, I guess. Why not? Little did I know it was a stroke of genius. And, uh, and I think I had, uh, I had most of the lyrics written, but I didn't have it. When he goes, you want a piece of my heart? You better start from the start. You want to be in the show? Come on, baby. Let's go. That was Mike as well. So two, that was his contribution to the song, but pretty major contribution. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would, I would certainly say now, um, you know, there's, there's so much more to talk about, but I, I want to go to this one here because this one's always amazed me. November 19th, 1979, Pacific Coliseum <laughs> in Vancouver. Kiss Our is on their Dynasty ever. tour. Right. Now, Kiss is on the Dynasty tour. Now, let, let me put this to you. August 6th, 1979, I saw my first ever show, and it was Kiss with New England. And here you are three months later, and Kiss is still on tour, and they get... Your first show, it's not the gymnasium at the local high school. It's not the bar down the street. <laughs> Explain. How do you, first of all, get on the bill? How did you prepare for it? What was it like? I mean, you're, you're see, just, just, just give me the whole story. Well, you're going to have to ask Bruce Allen who he called because it was totally, 100% Bruce's deal. He told us we were doing it. And we were, what? you kidding our first show, he says, I'm not going to have you messing around doing exactly what you just said. You're not going to be playing gymnasiums. You're not going to be playing some, some club for the door. I mean, we, we ended up doing that afterwards, but we're not, we're going to start off. We're going to make a real splash. So you guys better be ready. And well, we did our best, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was interesting because we were, we were pummeled with, uh, um, toilet paper rolls. Thankfully, because the next week we played a club and they were throwing ice cubes and quarters and rat tail combs at us. But the first night it was it was soft, good, so that was okay. But 
it was a it was an amazing opportunity. It was and here's a little Montreal story. Jim Clench was our bass player for oh. that show, and 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 the next couple of weeks didn't work out. But uh, and he knew it. But uh, uh, it's just a different style. But what an amazing player, an amazing guy, and and singer and everything. But I I thought this is going to be maybe we got a, a a lead singing bass player to sing behind behind Mike, and then I'll throw a third part in or whatever. Wow. But it it just wasn't wasn't to be. But and this is this is nothing to take away from Jim. I mean, we rehearsed as much as we could. But you know, when you get the pressures on, we've been playing the tunes. We've been playing "Turn Me Loose" for in rehearsal for I don't know months. Me and Mike from the day we wrote it together. And uh, I, <laughs> I remember. So the, on the next next song is "Turn Me Loose," and Jim comes over to me and says, "How does that go?" And I go, "Dum dum dum dum." Oh yeah yeah okay got it. And he, then he walks back over to a spot in front of his app and lays it out. I thought that was kind of cool. That, that, I mean, it, it, a bit of an iconic part, but uh, you, I totally understand why it's like you're trying to remember all the keys and all the tempos and who starts it and when do I come in and blah, blah, blah. And it, it was, I don't know, we probably did seven songs or eight songs, but don't remember. Well, and, that, and that's the thing. Like, your album, the first one... Um, you know, Loverboy only comes out in November of 1980, so it's a year before your first album. So, so you're playing "Turn Me Loose." Were you playing, you know, "The Kid Is Hot Tonight"? Were you playing any of that stuff, or was it like "Turn Me Loose" and six covers? We never, we've never played a cover in our lives, other than maybe to throw it in the middle of the tune for, 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 for a break or whatever. So, yeah, yeah. So you're playing we, the entire just, first album, basically, or you were the songs you might have had. We we were to a point, but we had another. We had a couple of tunes that I sang that I, that I was doing because we, we, the tunes weren't, weren't really ready, but, but yes, we did play the kid is hot because we played the kid is hot the very the next night. We, we had, a, that, I think that was probably a Saturday. And the next Monday we had a gig in Chilliwack, BC in a club there. And played our, all, we had three sets of all original stuff and we opened the second set with the kid is hot. And we finally, or maybe, no, I think we closed it, closed the second set, and we finally got some response. I went, oh, okay, well, we're, then, we're not complete losers then. Because here's a brand new band nobody's heard of, other than if they'd been to the, the Kiss show, but essentially we're, we're, you know, 60 miles away in a small club, and uh, we're, we play our first set, and everybody's going, yeah, whatever. And then the second set, yeah, whatever. Who are these guys? You know, give me a break. And then we played The Kid is Hot, and everybody went, oh. Everybody sort of stood up and paid attention, you know. So that that was a really good feeling of, of uh, maybe we do have a little bit of something going on, you know. I mean, we've been working. We worked for two years in the stu- in the in the rehearsal hall, and uh, we would I would go to to Lou Blair, also no longer with us, unfortunately. I would go to him and say, "Okay, we're ready." He says, "No, you're not ready. Come on, man. It's been a year and a half. You're not ready." back in the studio or back in the rehearsal I'll keep writing and we finally got to the point he says he and Bruce who were managing and Bruce Allen who were managing us at the time said okay go <laughs> go and play with Kiss <laughs> so that's that's, that's uh, and by the way that, that speaks testaments or, or, or mountains to the talent that Bruce Allen was you know he had of course Brian Adams later on and stuff but he just had a way of picking bands and getting them 
to the stage where, where they were ready to take on the world because any other manager would have slugged you out in the clubs and you might have disappeared in six months. So, you know, there's something well, to be said for that. Yeah, it was actually, it was, it was Lou, Lou Blair was managing us. He, okay. Lou and I go back to, to 68 when we went on the road and played yeah. Montreal and, 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 uh, Ottawa and lived in Toronto for a long time. And, uh, he, he, was my biggest, my best friend and my biggest fan at the same time. He supported me. I, I worked with a lot of different managers between 68 and when we got back together in 77 at when I, when I was uh, let go of Streetheart. And, uh, but he would all say, don't sign anything. Be careful. Just don't sign anything. And I'm like, okay, buddy. And, uh, somehow I made it through legally so that when we got back together again and we started Loverboy, he, I had a, uh, I had a, through my street art thing, I had a first option that we had to give to Warner Brothers in Canada, and I believe Mike might have had a commitment that he had to fulfill too. It might have even been with Warner's, but I know that I had one, and we wanted out because they weren't supporting us, so, uh, but we didn't feel that they were doing the job with street art that I would, I thought maybe they could be doing, and uh, so. Mike and I, we we made a pact one night. We said, because you know, we we're both pretty gun shy. We'd been he just left Moxie, and I just left Streetheart, and we'd been in so many bands with so many managers, and he had management problems, I had management problems, and uh, so we made we made a pact that night. He says, okay, you want to make you want to make this a band? He says, yeah, let's do it. Just that was it. It was night. Okay, we'll sign this agreement and, and seal it in blood. And I got my boys standing over in the corner with their arms folded. You better do this right. None of that. It was uh, yeah. Let's do it. And it stood till today. <clears throat> and uh, so I had this commitment with, with Warner Brothers, and I really wanted out of it. So we said, okay, well, let, they they want three songs. Let's give them three if you can call them songs. So we made the crappiest, worst sound and demos. I can have no idea what they were. We probably wrote the tune in a minute or something. And they listened to it and went, oh, okay, you're released. And we went, thank you. And then we got serious. And then, of course, the, the Lover Boys. Were, were you on the uh, the version of Hot Sherry by Streetheart? I have no idea what that is. Okay, that that's a song that that Neil Sean of of Journey and and Hardline uh, took in '91 and made very very popular, but it had originally been recorded by uh, Streetheart. Um, oh wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I know, isn't it? Because it's it's funny. It's one of those songs, a little bit like I Love Rock and Roll. Everybody thinks oh, that's Joan Jett's song, but it's a cover, and everybody thinks, oh, that that Hardline song, Hot Sherry, is so great. And it's like, yeah, well, you know what? It's a cover of a Canadian band, so there you go, folks. Uh, <laughs> wow. um, there you go. So, so that's that. That's great. And uh, I was going to ask if there's any any fun uh, kiss stories from that first show, but I guess they were just you were just the opening band. You didn't get to see them. You didn't get you know Ace Frehley didn't pat you on the back and said you know go get them, buddy. Nothing like <laughs> nothing like that, right? We no. We we were coming off stage and they were they were all four of them were going down the down the aisle. Or maybe we had already got changed and we came out after that. We were ready to, to hit it and they came walking down the aisle backstage, all four of them in full makeup and boots and hair and, and costumes. And that was a blast to see that like right there. But uh, I never, there was a, there was a, uh, I think a CBS party in New York many, many years later that, that uh, Paul and, and uh, helped me out. Um, Gene? Damn it. Thank you. 
many, many years ago that Paul and Gene were at, and so were Mike and I, maybe the rest of the band, but we got to meet him there and hang out a little bit. And I think this was probably long after Sword and Stone had come out, but uh, it's kind of, kind of a little blurry there. It's a few years back. Well, hopefully at some point we'll hear uh, Sword and Stone in a uh, Loverboy uh, concert, because I, I know it was released on one of your compilations uh, somewhere down the road. I think it was uh, the, the 2003 compilation. But there you Paul, an absolute pleasure. I will, I will remind folks that Stop the Rain is the new single. It is on iTunes, and there you go. And, uh, you know, head over to loverboyband.com for tour dates, because there are always tour dates, which, is, which I, I think is, is great. There's just always, always a tour date and something going on. So that's, hey. I know. They keep, they, they're coming in fast and furious. I can't believe how many shows that we still get that people want to see us. It just blows my mind. And I couldn't be happier, obviously. It's the, it's the best thing ever. I mean, it's to, to, to play, first of all, play my guitar, to play our songs, and to play with these guys in front of our fans. I mean, yeah, okay, I'm there. No matter where, if we can physically make it. We're going to England for one day. That's, that's how much we love to play. Do, do, you, do you think at some point, though, is there sort of retirement in the future? Or do you say, no, 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 we keep, we keep doing this as long as we keep doing this? As long as we stay health, healthy, you know, I can't see why not. I mean, with the miracles of modern medicine, hell, we could be here on forever. Yeah. Oh, and uh, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you. Chuck Berry, uh, 90 years old, recently passed away. He's sort of the genesis for everything rock and roll that came after. You know, his playing advanced the guitar by eons. Uh, any memories of, of Chuck and, and sort of what he meant to guitar playing? Did he affect your, your playing at all? Late of the 80s, okay. Hot Girls in Love, and Doing It the Hard Way. It's right out of, right out of the Chuck Berry uh, guitar book, guitar player's book, no question. We played, we had the honor of playing with him once. He had, Chuck had an interesting thing. He would show up and he would hire a local band. He wouldn't travel with anything. He'd carry his guitar, maybe a spare guitar, probably just one guitar. And that's how he would show up at the gig. But he would... He, I'm sure he had an advanced team that would go out and he'd find some four guys that could sort of, you know, that could back him up and they, he'd negotiate a fee. Well, one the show that we played, I believe it was in Charlotte, North Carolina. And we were, I'm sure we were opening and uh, his drummer got food poisoning or something happened. He got really sick and he had to, he ended up using the monitor man on drums. It's like pretty casual. But it didn't matter. I mean, he he got out there and he did his thing. He would have, you know, he was 75, you know, still, and I guess he was rocking until he was, till his last breath. I don't know. I don't know what he's, what he was doing recently, but uh, what a huge influence. And, and uh, the, the, uh, the guitar thing in, in Back to the Future, hilarious. What a, I know, that was a, one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Yeah. God, no, I, man. You got to see these moves. You got to feel these moves. That that, that was brilliant. Yeah, uh, it, it was amazing great. Player. Amazing player. And uh, Paul, just thank you. Thank you for all your time today. It's been absolutely wonderful. And in terms of of uh, touring, you are in my part of the woods in Santia, Saint Quebec, in June. So I will definitely come out and check that out and say hello. Oh yeah. And, uh, very much looking forward to it. It's been uh, it's been too long. But the last time I saw you was Hampton Beach casino ballroom with i think it was eddie money on the bill this is like oh yeah 2003 2004 so it's it's been too long 
Way too long. Now, would that would that be on the East Coast? Yeah, that, that was on the States? East Coast. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Right. Okay. Well, yeah, so... we did a we, we Survivor or no? Uh, uh, oh, was it Survivor? It might have been Survivor. I don't think it was. It might have been or, or Patty Smith. What's her? Or I guess it, whatever her dad, band was called. Um, Warrior. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, no, it, but it's been way too long. It's been, it's been about thirteen yeah. or fourteen years since I last uh, last saw Loverboy on a stage, and uh, that's that's just wrong. That, that's just wrong. We got <laughs> we got to correct that. You're, so you know, so bad. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the last time that you were here, you were opening for Journey at the Bell Center. Ah, and yeah. that was I, an amazing I, tour. It was an amazing tour, and. Um, I was doing photos that night, and they had us sort of sequestered downstairs. So my wife saw you, and I come out after the photos and all this, and she says, it's the best band I've ever seen in the world. And I'm like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I missed it <laughs> because, because work made me miss it. I mean, I got, the sh- whole thing. I got great pictures of Journey that night, but I didn't get to see Loverboy. And she still uh, will tease me with that and go, oh, man, you missed it. Man, you should have seen They were <laughs> Yeah, I'm like, thank you. Well, bring her along, and we'll uh, we'll we'll treat you guys right. Uh, absolutely, thank you. Thank you for everything. All right, Mitch, appreciate it. Have man. a good one. Bye bye. Bye. And there you have it, folks. My interview with Paul Dean of Loverboy. Some great Kiss stories in there. Some great stories about Mutt Lang, Tom Allen, Brian Adams, Chuck Berry, Loverboy, the whole thing. Uh, just absolutely wonderful. So thank you to Paul for, for taking the time. And I certainly hope you enjoyed this very first episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. This one was super size. We, we, it's really long, the, you know, hour, hour and a half. So I'm certainly glad that you stuck around. Uh, they won't be all this, uh, this much. It, it won't be so labor intensive for you to get through episodes. But I figured first one, let's give them all we got. Let's, let's make it a big bang. Uh, so there you go. Uh, folks, thank you. And uh, thank you again to uh, Chris Jericho and the Jericho Network and, of course, Podcast One. And with that, folks, please head over to Twitter and check me out, at Mitch LaFon. And, uh, hey, bye for now. Download new episodes of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon every Monday at Podcast One and on the Podcast One app. Or you can subscribe at iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and share. Here's an interesting fact for you. There are nearly one million new books published in the U.S. alone every year. So if you like to read, how do you choose what you're going to read? Well, that's where Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews comes in. You see, Kirkus has been one of the top book review publications for over 80 years. They do a deep dive on thousands of titles every year, including interviewing best-selling authors and telling you what might be the hot new release before everyone else knows. And it's coming to Podcast One in just a few weeks. So keep your eyes and ears open for Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. President Trump denies it. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. President Trump denies on Twitter using vulgar language when questioning why the U.S. would accept more immigrants from Haiti and African nations. 17 dead, 43 missing in Southern California after Tuesday's heavy rain and devastating mudslides. Santa Barbara County Sheriff Bill Brown is asking people to evacuate some areas so search and rescue crews can do their jobs. It is seriously impacting the ability of search and rescue, public works, other first responders and repair crews to clear roadways and to engage in search and rescue repair 
and damage assessment operations. Missouri Governor and former Navy SEAL Eric Greitens is now under investigation after acknowledging an extramarital affair but denying anything more, including accusations that he tried to blackmail the woman into keeping quiet. I'm Rita Foley.